mindfulness mode. I don't want anything to endanger the pure, clean, positive input I'm getting in my mind in that first 90 minutes. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. This is Bruce. Today, I want to celebrate the life of a well-loved man, a mentor, a friend to many podcasters and entrepreneurs, including myself, Dan Miller. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. Well, in December, Dan was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and sadly, he just passed away on the weekend. My deepest condolences go out to his wife, Joanne. their children, Kevin Miller, Ashley Logston, and Jared and Gaza. And I just just felt so moved and so compelled by this interview and then as well by the news of his passing that for today's episode, I decided to pull up our past interview from the Mindfulness Mode vault of past episodes. And This was back in July of 2020 when I talked to Dan, and so I decided to share this interview with you today. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Dan Miller. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm here with a man who is so well known for his New York Times bestselling book called 48 Days. I'm sure you've heard of it. He's known for his podcast with the same name, He's spoken at the White House. Get this. He's been featured in so many television shows like Hardball with Chris Matthews and the Dave Ramsey Show. And he has this incredibly vibrant community called 48 Days Eagles at 48dayseagles.com. I'm here with Dan Miller. Hey, Dan, are you in mindfulness mode today? Oh, I am indeed. I, I love the topic, love the concept. And it's just a reminder to me to really be mindful. Love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so glad to finally meet you after all this time and hearing so many amazing things about you. And Dan, what does mindfulness mean to you? Well, to me, I mean, I'm a pretty simple guy and it just means paying attention, just being aware of what's around us, sights, sounds, feelings. And I see a lot of people trucking through life and they just have blinders on. We, we live on a, a piece of property here just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And sometimes when I'm working with like a busy executive who is burned out and we go on a walk, we'll go on a walk on my nature trail. And I see that gentleman does not notice the red bird. He doesn't see the rabbits. You know, he doesn't hear the wind blowing the leaves. And I think, oh, okay. I just got a lot of insight into why his life is like it is. He's not paying attention to the things that are closest to him. Yeah, it's so important to pay attention. And I know on your podcast, you talk about that kind of thing a lot. And I know that you've talked a number of times about the 10 characteristics of people who become rich. That was on one of your podcasts a few weeks ago. And you said, well, number 10 is enjoy the present, but plan for the future. And that is so important, isn't it? It is. Any of those tips are not things like high-level financial strategies, they have so much more to do with mindset and mindfulness than what people are aware of. And when we see people who really have accomplished extraordinary things, we can look at their life. We don't have to just look at tactics, look at their life, and it gives us a lot of clues as to what works. Well, one of your points was accept personal responsibility. That was number seven. I think we're kind of in a a really 
an interesting place right now because I think there are a lot of people who don't truly accept personal responsibility. Would you agree with that? Oh, unfortunately, yes. We were, my wife and I were sitting outside just this last Saturday night at a restaurant here in Franklin, Tennessee, where we live. And a young couple walked down the street that we hadn't seen in probably two years. And they looked over, saw us and just, oh, waved their hands, came running over to greet us. And they stopped short and said, are you guys practicing social distancing? I said, yes, we are. We're staying away from people who are angry, complaining, and negative. If you're one of those, please stay back. Well, they laughed and we greeted each other and went on. But yeah, I mean, those are, those are people that I, I don't want to spend a lot of time with. People who are pointing fingers and blaming. I know there are unfortunate things that happen, but they happen to all of us. We're not immune, no matter who we are, where we are. We do have things that are unfortunate that happen to us. But if we look in the mirror and say, okay, dude, you know, you got me into this. You're going to get me out. That's a great place to begin change. Yeah, it really is. Well, the number one thing on your list is expect success. And I think that's so important. But I think that some people have something going on in their subconscious mind that even though in their conscious mind, they can say, yes, I'm going to accept success. I'm going to expect it. I'm going to... I'm going to think that way, but in their subconscious mind, there, there's a voice saying something else. What do we do about that? You know, when I was a 13-year-old farm kid, we, we were poor, poor farmers in Ohio. I remember when we got our first cow, we milked by hand. Yeah. We had moved all the way up to 12 cows. We milked by hand twice a day, 365 days a year before we got any kind of equipment. But in that environment, somehow I got a hold of the little audio recording by Earl Nightingale titled The Strangest Secret. And the key concept is we become what we think about. Mm -hmm. And I thought, would it be possible for me as a poor farm kid to change the obvious trajectory of my life to get out of school, help my dad on the farm? Could I possibly have some other options if I simply controlled what I allowed to go into my mind, what I think about? That became such a powerful foundational principle then and remains so today. We become what we think about. So I can change those things that seem to be set up by my circumstances and surroundings. I change my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And you obviously did that. And what was the toughest part of your journey? When you look back, did you have some really tough times where you struggled? I did. And frankly, one of those was in leaving my dad's farm. That yeah. was not a, a pleasant experience. He felt like I should go to school till I was 16, what the state required. And then I owed it to him because he had put a roof over my head for 16 years to then work with him in the farm. I wanted to go more, to be more, to do more, to have more than what I saw as a result of that. And so I left the farm. That was tough. But I, I'll be quick to say time is a wonderful healer. Now, over the years, when my dad saw my enjoyment and fulfillment in what I did, he was the proudest cheerleader I had right up to his dying day in the nursing home. And he had my books in there. He'd point me out when he saw me on TV. So I, I'm thrilled to say that and quick to add that. But that's, that was a tough transition. I had to really make sure I was going in a direction that was going to be a positive one, even though it was causing some immediate challenge. 
Yeah, well, I really resonate with your story. I grew up on a farm too, and we had usually 12 to 14 cows, you know, when, when you're telling that story, I'm like, oh yeah. And, and my dad had this idea, you know, just, you know, don't, don't try to be, you know, tr don't try to do too much, just kind of live a, a very humble life and that kind of thing. And, uh, I wanted to go to university. I wanted to study and kind of better myself. And he didn't really think that that was something that made sense. You know, he didn't really see that and he didn't understand that, but he just died last year. And, and then in the last few weeks before he died, he talked to me quite a bit about some of his thoughts and because he was a man of few words. So there, we didn't know a lot about what went on in his mind, but he t did say a lot of things in the last few weeks and the last few months. And one of the things was one day he sat back in his chair and he said, you know, Bruce, I never had a friend. Oh my gosh. And That's I thought, what? I know, I, th I thought, oh my gosh, like how devastating, you know, he, he had hard times, his, you know, his mother died when he was young and then his stepmother died a few years, years later. And then he, he just, he had some really hard times, but for whatever reason, he had a lot of anger and a lot of pain and he didn't know how to reach out. He didn't know how to give and reach out and he didn't know how to accept either. Wow. Oh and it was goodness. just, it was hard hearing those words. Oh my, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Goodness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. also uh, a reminder to anybody listening, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, you can, right. you can have circumstances that you don't like, but you can take the initiative and change things starting today. Even there, you, you don't have to wait for a friend to show up. Be a friend to somebody else and it'll start that relationship and connection. Right. I know before I hit record, we were talking about your, your group, which is called 48 Eagles, 48 days, eagles.com. And, and there's a real sense of community there. Wouldn't you say like people are hungry for community? They are so hungry for community. A lot of people are in situations where they're coworkers saying, nah, that'd be stupid to leave this and go try to do something on your own. You know, you can't do that. Or family members say, hey, nobody in this family you know, ever made $100,000 a year. Why would you think you could? So this is a place where people cheer you on, not artificially, but by leading the way with things they're doing. So people are extremely generous with their ideas and resources in that community. And it just thrills me to see what's happening there. Leaders emerge. We have success stories every day about people taking their background where they may do something different moving forward. So we have pharmacists and dentists and veterinarians and pastors who say, I don't want to do what is traditionally done in that profession. And we see them emerging with new ways to validate their background and experience, but new ways to thrive and prosper. Dan, I know that you spoke at the White House and when you did that, you were speaking as part of the White House Christian Fellowship because you're a Christian. And I want to know what that was like. What was that experience like having the opportunity to speak there? It was absolutely thrilling from beginning to end. Getting the invitation, going there, there's the accommodations they provided, tour of Washington, D.C., and then a personal just one-on-one -on -one tour with Joanne and me through the White House, got to sit in the seat in the Oval Office. I mean, it was just 
it, it's humbling to recognize the not only the power, but the responsibility that is seated there. And to talk to people who take seriously that responsibility that's been handed to them, but also recognize these are people who don't think they have it all together, don't think they have all the answers. They're still seeking. And I found them to be extremely receptive. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Wow. I know you've been married to your wife, Joanne, for over 50 years. What kind of mindfulness does that take? <laughs> Tell us about some suggestions you have to help people have a strong, happy, powerful marriage. Wow. That, that goes deep. Somebody asked me in an interview just yesterday, hey, what's the best decision I ever made? And I said, without question, marrying the woman I married. Now, we were really young. We were both looking for a way out of the family situation that we were in. And we got married as teenagers and hung on to each other, went to the Ohio State University together, and have just gone on from there. Now, obviously, with over 50 years of marriage, she's not the woman I married. And I'm grateful for that. I hear people say, oh, you know, he changed, she changed, we're no longer compatible. And I'm thinking, my goodness, did you really want somebody to stay the same and never change? I don't. We've had a delightful journey together. If there's one word in that relationship that really captures what I think is the magic, Bruce, it's respect. The respect that we show for each other I means simple little things. I mean, I still, when we walk out of our house, I walk around the other side of the car to open the door for her. Now, that may be old fashioned and chauvinistic. I don't know. But you know what? That creates an emotional deposit for me, like few other things do. We have date night. Still, our children are grown and gone. We have lots of grandchildren. We still have date night every Friday. She knows I'm not going to make another commitment. Doesn't matter who calls. Bruce calls and says, hey, I'm going to be in town. Can we get together, hang out Friday night? I look at my schedule. And I'm sorry, Bruce. I already have a commitment. And that commitment is date night with my wife. So those are the kind of things that build in trust and just give us those that, that emotional security in that relationship. We're, we're in the middle of a brand new adventure right now, but we love just starting new things together, the thrill of planning together and imagine what our lives are going to be like 20 years from now. And can you share a little bit about what that brand new adventure is? <laughs> My wife is, a, is, is energized by being around the water. It soothes her soul in a way that it doesn't really do for me, but she has been so drawn to the water. So we just purchased a home in Florida, um, right near the beach. And we're just having a ball, just anticipating. We're getting rid of a lot of things that we know we don't need or will not fit in the new style home. So it's a new style home, totally, than what we've been living in. So it's going to be all new furniture new furnishings, new decorations. And along with that, a lot of new friends, new restaurants, all those things are new. We love that kind of adventure because we're doing it together. It wouldn't have any thrill for me at all if I were doing that. But together, wow, it's an adventure. And we're back again, a couple of teenagers. That's exciting. So then you're leaving Tennessee or you're still going to have your home in Tennessee? We still have our home here. There are still some things here. I do have a strong business base here and we have a couple of properties here. So for the time being, we'll have both, but I suspect that over time, this will become 
less important. I'm going to see how much I enjoy working from Florida. So that's unfolding. Again, those are things that are not set in stone at all. But we're just going to have fun exploring it and kind of see how we, what, you know, what the first six months brings. That is, that is really exciting. I was going to ask you what role nature plays in your life and how mindfulness ties into that. And I know that you have your trails and your, your, your place in Tennessee. So I'm assuming that that's a big part of it. But you tell us, what role does nature play for you? Well, it really does. And having grown up in a farm, I love being outside. I feel more connected to, to God and things beyond myself in that way, certainly than I do with concrete and asphalt sitting in a cubicle somewhere. So even my office is in an old converted barn on our property where I can look outside and we've got water features and there's nature trails, bird feeders. There's often wild turkey or deer standing outside there. I'm not going to have all of that in Florida, but we've replicated a lot of that. We don't just have a little tract house, you know, that has a sidewalk six feet from the front door. No, we've got a little bit of space with a beautiful front yard, backyard, a lake behind our house. You can't see any houses from behind our house because it goes to a lake and then to a national preserve. So we, we made sure that we had some pieces of what I really enjoy. But my breaks in a work day are to get outside. Just prior to our conversation here, I went for a walk. I'm barefoot, went for a walk outside. And that does a lot to just ground me and restore me, to restore my energy and get my mind set so that I can have meaningful conversations. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's so important for me, too. It really is. Uh, your son, Jared, was a guest on my show back in 2017, Jared in Gaza. And that was episode 208. So Mindful Tribe, you can check that out, mindfulnessmode.com slash 208. Jared was such a fascinating guest, but I was going to ask you, what have you learned from your children about mindfulness and how to live a balanced life? Well, you know, mentioning Jared, who is our middle child, we have three. So we had two boys and then a girl. But Jared's a good example of that. And you mentioned kind of just casually there with my son, Jared, on Gaza. Now, it might be curious to some people that my biological son does not have the last name that I do. So it's not Miller, although he spent the first 27 years of his life with the last name Miller, but then came to us. He was living in Kigali, Rwanda at the time. And he said, would we be, he came to his mother and me at that age. So he's already grown, came to us and said, would we be offended if he considered the idea of changing his last name? Well, we thought it was delightful. I mean, Miller is not exactly, you know, something special. I mean, I, I joked about taking Joanne's last name when we got married because mine was so boring. But anyway, <laughs> we thought it was wonderful. Jared's very intentional. As you probably know, he's very, yeah. very thoughtful. And he has a golden Rolodex. So he has a lot of people that he could consult with. And he did. And ultimately, he chose the last name on Gaza. It's Swahili. And the meaning is instrument of light. Now, what mom and dad could be disappointed in a child who chose the last name so intentionally as something they wanted their life to represent, rather than just taking Smith, Jones, Miller? No, he chose a name that he wants to be representative 
of what he wants his life to be. Instrument of light. I mean, we're thrilled with that. But yeah, you talk about kids who are mindful. Oh my goodness. My kids are, are examples for me to follow. Um, they've, they've grown up and we tried to expose them to things, but give them things that would build character and integrity in them, give them a lot of experiences so they could find their own unique path. Each of them has. My oldest son, Kevin, is the host of the Ziggler podcast. Now, again, when he was a little boy, instead of giving him a spanking or a timeout, we would give him attitude adjustments. So as an eight-year-old, when he did something that didn't line up with our mission statement for the family, we would have him sit down and for five, six minutes, listen to that iconic voice of Zig Ziglar. And he'd hear those things like stinking thinking, check up from the neck up and all. And then we'd talk about it. Well, as a little kid, you resent any kind of punishment like that. And so he wanted to get rid of that. So he grew up and got married, moved off into his own. Well, things kind of unfolded. Ultimately, I introduced him to Tom Ziegler, which is Zig's son. They became buddies. They biked together, had conversations, and ultimately ended up with Kevin as the host. He now is the voice. He is promoting those messages of stinking thing and check up from the neck up, the story about getting cooked in the squat, biscuits and fleas, the story of the pump, all of those. He's the voice, which thrills me. And because of the power of that voice in history, his podcast, which he's had for about four years now, has passed 47 million downloads. But again, just paying attention, paying attention to the things that are right around you, not only the things that make you a better person, but also the opportunities that come with that. So, yeah, and my, my daughter works for me. She's, she's never had another job. She's never wanted to do anything but work with me in promoting the 48 days to the work you love message. So it's been a delight. She's my gold standard, Bruce. Anybody we bring onto our team, I measure them against my daughter, Ashley. She is so amazing. Now, nobody measures up, but if they come close, then we welcome them onto our team. <laughs> wow, that is cool. That sounds amazing. It's a cool story about your son now being the, the host of the Ziegler podcast. That yeah, is man. really incredible. Wow. I didn't know that. Well, I, I hear so much about you and, and so on. But I want to ask you a question about bullying because I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time. So I always ask a question about this topic. Were you ever bullied in your life or did you ever bully anyone? Was, do you have a story you can share with us where mindfulness maybe would have made a difference? Sure. And, and in response to your first question, was I ever bullied? I really don't remember that. But again, with my positive mindset, I might have been bullied and just didn't recognize. It. But yeah. I'm sensitive to it because we were a different family. And it certainly set the stage for me to be bullied. We were Mennonites. My grandparents were Amish. So horse and buggy, no plumbing, no electricity, strict Amish. My parents became conservative Mennonite. But we were very different. We were not in a Mennonite community. But we were Mennonites. So my sisters wore the head covering and long black dresses. They, I'm sure, were the recipients of more bullying or ridiculing than I was. I kind of blended in, but I, it was never really an issue. So I kind of skirted by that one because I was a boy instead of a girl, probably. 
Mm-hmm. But I think that experience made me sensitive to recognize that if somebody looks different, be careful. Their family may be different than mine, but at the heart, I'll bet that we have a lot in common. And so it has made me very sensitive to that. But now as an adult and as a business guy, I recognize the tendency toward those things in business interactions. Not too long ago, I went to breakfast with a friend, which I often do. I ask somebody, let's meet for lunch. Let's meet meet for breakfast rather than just coming to my office. So we met for breakfast. Now, this is a pretty successful business guy who had a proposal for me. I saw how he treated the waitstaff. It was instantaneous for me. I will never do business with this man. Yeah. Because how he diminished them and spoke down to them. I mean, it immediately told me all I needed to know about doing, I don't care what the proposal is. I don't care if there's a prospect of me making a million dollars. I will never be engaged in a business relationship with that gentleman. So those are the kind of things that certainly stand out to me today. Watch how somebody treats other people. And if there's any sign of belittling or bullying or ridicule, nah, I can be friends, but it's not going to go farther than that. They're not going to be in my inner circle and I'm not going to have any kind of business relationship with them. I totally resonate with that. I totally do. And being a musician, I played music in restaurants for quite a while when I was putting myself through university and I was a church music director and also, you know, did this, all the music and I would see how the servers were treated and I would experience how the people in the kitchen felt, you know, they would talk to me about how they felt, you know, when certain people would complain about their meals and different things. So I'm very sensitive to that when I go into a restaurant as well. So I totally understand that. I want to talk about meditation, Dan. I know you're a Christian and I know possibly your form of meditation may be prayer, but I want to know if you meditate and if that plays a role in your daily life. Bruce, there is nothing that has contributed to my success, whatever that is, as much as how I treat the first 90 minutes of the day. That to me is sacred time. And that sets the stage for what the rest of the day is going to be. I mean, after nine o'clock, bring it on. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to be fine. But I really protect the first 90 minutes of the day. So I go to bed when I'm tired, usually around 930. And I get up about 530. That's eight hours. I haven't used an alarm clock in 35 years, I guess. I wake up when my body says I'm rested. I hit the floor in a room adjacent to our bedroom so I don't disturb my wife, but do some yoga stretches. And then I get up and I walk to the end of our house inside in the hallway. And I walk the entire length of our house, looking out the windows, the animals are usually coming to life and I express gratitude out loud, out loud. Then I go to a favorite chair of mine in our living room that looks out over the front where again I see animals, water feature and the flowers blooming, all those things, trees swaying in the wind. And that's where I do my meditation. So yeah, I do have a period of meditation, usually about 20 minutes long there. And then I go to the treadmill. And then on the treadmill, and I'm typically on the treadmill, my range is from 48 to 60 minutes, depending on the podcast I'm listening to, to get pure, clean, inspirational input. But in that period of time, and until that's over, I never turn on the news. I don't grab my phone and look at emails, texts, nothing. I don't want anything to endanger 
the pure, clean, positive input I'm getting in my mind in that first 90 minutes. Then I take a shower. By then, Joanne's usually up. We have a cup of tea and a muffin together, going to review what we're going to do for the day, and then I'm ready to start the day. But that period of mindful meditation, calming, but in that I'm, I'm getting you know meditation, movement. Those are things that I want in the first part of the day to then set the stage for the day. I so agree with you. Habits, routine, they're so important. I, I really agree completely. And I think that's a big part of mindfulness. So have you been a lifelong learner, even when you were young? Were you always looking to learn? I was. I have been. We, again, because of my upbringing, we did not have radio or TV in our house. Well, poor little Dan. Well, you know what that did? It drove me to books. Instead of just superficial entertainment, it drove me to books. And I was drawn to books. We had access to a little tiny library in our town. And it drove me to books, the old Horatio Alger stories, people going rags to riches. And I started reading those. I don't read fiction, but I read those kind of stories with principles embedded in them. And I've just always been drawn to that. I love reading. I, I went through a, a real business challenge a few days or a few years ago. And I just committed in that period of time that I would spend two hours a day listening to positive input. And so the old masters of achievement, people like Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar and Dennis Waitley, all those old greats, Vincent Peale, Earl Nightingale, Napoleon Hill, those are the people that I listen to. And those are the ones that have opened me up to bigger opportunities because of my mindfulness, because of my belief, my expectation for a bigger future. I mean, those, you know, I've always been that way. But, you know, sometimes people assume that when you get to a certain point, I mean, I've been around a few years and uh, things have gone you know, pretty well. And they assume that, well, then you just kind of relax. Oh, my gosh, that thought just makes my blood run cold. The fact, there's my age and the fact that we're moving to Florida, a lot of people assume that I'm retiring. Right. And what that means typically really just sends shivers up my spine because I am not looking to just play shuffleboard and bingo and sit in the front porch and drool on myself. I have plans for the next 25 years and I want to continue learning. If I stop growing, please dig a hole and push me in. The day <laughs> I stop growing, I'm done. Wow. Wow. Well, it must be so exciting. This move on the horizon, this, this is going to be a big change for you, isn't it? It is. It is. It's going to be a major change. A lot of things are changing, but you know what? I love that. I love the idea of change because I don't want to get stuck in complacency. I don't want to get stuck just thinking things are okay. You know, with what we're going through right now, the unexpected changes and challenges we've had this year, for a lot of people, it's just a wake up call and they'll end up in a lot better place than what they had previously because they were just hanging on to what was predictable. I, I want to, I mean, one of my things is, you know, if it ain't broke, break it because I am fearful. There, there's the, the idea of predictable success is very dangerous for me because I'll start sabotaging it. I like the challenge of having to make something new work. And I like a, approaching new things where I have about a 50, 50 chance of it working. So I know there's going to be failure along the way in terms of what, how other people see it. Those are just learning opportunities. You know, there's only two outcomes when we try something. 
either you win or you learn. Those are the only two possibilities. And if you believe that, then you keep moving forward regardless. Good advice. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what you've learned from this pandemic, if anything. Well, it's that. It's it's the fact that I am an encourager and work with people who want to experience more has meant that everything I do has accelerated in this period of time. Um, I told my wife recently, I almost, almost feel guilty because I know a lot of people have suffered with other kinds of businesses in this period of time. We have not. This has been, though, a time for people to, to recognize, I better not be complacent. I've had an outburst of pastors calling me, saying, how can I get involved? Because they thought they had security. Well, of course, people come to a church every Sunday morning. Well, you know, guess what? Right now, they don't. And for them, that was a dramatic shift. And so they're saying, wow, I don't have the security I thought I did. What should I be looking at so I can move forward with what my vision mission and calling is knowing that it may not involve people getting together in a building on Sunday morning. So I I love those opportunities, but I've been immersed in that during this period of time more so than ever. Yeah, that's, that's great. As we move forward in the interview, Dan, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a strong mindfulness influence in your life? Well, really, I'll come back to Zig Ziglar. He had a profound impact on me because I thought that if you were successful and then then the theology that I grew up with, if you're successful financially, you've probably taken advantage of people. You've probably compromised your true faith. And here's a guy who I saw extremely successful, extremely successful financially as well, but also in his family, in his values. That that was a real inspiration for me and an eye-opener. My second question is, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? What keeps me aware that when I have reason to be upset, I have a choice. Those are not just inevitable responses. I always have a choice. Bruce, I carry with me in my pocket a gratitude stone. It's always there. It's a gratitude stone. Now, it's just a little Uh smooth stone, meaningless Uh to anybody else, but to me, Every time I reach in my pocket during the day for change or keys or a pen, I touch that stone and it reminds me to express gratitude. Those are choices. So mindfulness is something that we can be intentional about. It's not something we just have to wait for. Yes. And speaking of intention, tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice or if you have any intentional breathing that you do. Well, I do. As a matter of fact, I have a speech coach that I work with because I do a fair amount of speaking and he has helped me dramatically in that just the physical process of breathing because I speak you know on a microphone like this a lot but in working with him he'll have me stand up against the wall and push my shoulders back and he say okay now you're breathing from your diaphragm instead of just from your lungs so there again I've tried to learn I look for a coach in that area so I wouldn't just take the automatic process we do as human beings. No, I know I can hold my breath, count to seven, then exhale, count to seven. And those kind of practices I do during the day so that I stay full, so that I don't deplete my brain of oxygen by just practicing breathing well. My next question is, could you recommend a book? And of course, the book 48 Days 
is a tremendous book. It's been around for a long time. And right now you are uh, publishing a 20th anniversary edition, 48 Days to the Work You Love, 20th anniversary edition just out. So Mindful Tribe, get your hands on that. I was going to ask you in the interview what what is different about the 20th anniversary edition. But just before I do that, are there any other books you would recommend that are related to mindfulness? Yes. I Love the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. Every day of the year, there's a tip about how to handle stress, frustration, how to stay calm, how to have grace under pressure, those things. And I go through it again and again and again. And are there any apps that you use or that you would recommend that keeps you on track? Yes, there are. In my, I didn't share that, but it's pretty significant. Because, you know, I tend to be pretty hard charging. And so I realized in the early days of meditation, I could close my eyes and relax. And I'm thinking about 50 things that I want to do that day or that week. Well, I use Muse. Muse is the headband that you put on and it tracks your brain waves. You can't cheat. It knows if you start thinking about other things because the music gets louder. And what you want to do is get the music calm so that you actually hear birds. That has been a game changer for me in my meditation. Now, I also use things like Calm, but Muse, the actual physical headband, is the primary one that helped me learn to meditate more effectively. Yeah, it's awesome. I love that. And I think it's choosemuse.com. And I think that's their their website. And I was so tickled when we jumped in this call and you said, hey, go to this website. And you went 48days.com slash Bruce. And you put together something special for my guests. Mindful Tribe, check it out. 48days.com slash Bruce. And uh, that's great. Dan put that together just for me. So thank you for that. And now I'll ask that other question about your 48 Days to the Work You Love book. What's different about the 20th anniversary edition? I'm fascinated. Well, thank you. There's something that I'm so excited about. Now, this book you know, grew out of a little Sunday school class and the the request for material just to have helped that evolve and have the kind of success that we've had. And I updated every five years. So the 2020 edition is just out, but there's a very significant change in the title. I added two words that have never been there before. It's 48 Uh, days to the work and life you love. Life, Because with the stories that we hear, we recognize more and more, you know, work is not the center of your life. It's not the thing that identifies you. It's simply one tool for living a life that you love. So I added that in there. We get a lot of feedback about that. There are other things that I have in this new version, like overcoming the upper limit challenge. I mean, the idea of there may be family history and expectations where, yeah, nobody has ever made a hundred thousand dollars. How do you get past that? It requires a mindset change or you can sabotage your own success. The diminishing the importance of degrees, finding your unique zone of genius, how to be a digital nomad and other new work models, how to build a side business with only 15 hours a week. Those are some of the new things. I, it's, it's a challenge for me in updating every five years because so many things change in the workplace. And yet I, you know, I can't make a 600 page book. I have to still stay within the gu- guidelines of reasonable books. So some things have to come out. Some of the core principles 
are exactly the same as they were in the very first version back in 2000. How to understand how God has uniquely gifted you and then how to translate that into meaningful work on Monday morning. But the applications of what that work may look like have changed dramatically. So there's a whole lot of new content in there. Oh, that's great. Mindful Tribe, check out the book. You won't be sorry. You'll be glad that you got your hands on 48 Days to the Work You Love 20th Anniversary Edition. And it's just out, isn't it? When did it come out? It just came out in June. It did. It just came out. We just got them in stock. Um, It's a little into 2020 already. There's a story behind that. But I changed publishers and it was a very, very complicated process. But uh, we got that done. So it's a little bit late, but that's okay. It's going to be around now for the next five years. And then we'll have a new version again. Well, Dan, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you, spend this time with you and Mindful Tribe. Again, go to 48days.com slash Bruce. Thank you for being on the show, Dan. It's an honor to meet with somebody that's so highly respected and you've been so successful, done so many amazing things, and yet you still seem to be such a humble, approachable person. So thanks for doing what you do in the world. Oh, well, thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be with you. I hope that our conversation helps some of your listeners just stir those cobwebs and believe in a bigger future as well. I'm sure it will. All the best to you. Bye now. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode. 